Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. If the idea of this podcast is to help practicing change workers become aware of the different yet powerful ways of working with people, then today's guest may certainly tickle those transformative taste buds. Alexia Elliott hasn't just spent the last 15 years working with hypnosis and NLP, but she also combines shamanism, Jungian and <laughs> existential theories, as well as the sacred art of clowning into her work. So fascinated to talk to someone today who, in the process of helping people successfully create profound changes, also reintegrates spirituality into their lives. Welcome to the podcast, Alexia. Hello. Great to have you here. I'm wondering whether we can jump straight in and you could tell uh, us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and really fascinated about the origin story, how you got started in all of this kind of work. Well, you know, I advertise as myself as a as a hypnotherapist, and you know, when I first started out, that's what I did. And then, over the years, it's 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 kind of changed. And um, and until recently, when you asked me to do this, I couldn't really work out what it is that I did do. I just uh, seemed to do some stuff, and it really worked. So for the last few weeks, I've been thinking about this, and it, it's made me realise that there's a huge amount of playfulness and curiosity involved in my work and that's kind of being underpinned by theories from and kind of attitudes from shamanism clowning and um and particularly some of the kind of more um exploratory ideas of of Jungian theory so on top of that in my personal life I've been particularly interested in shamanism in the fact that it just it gives me a real sense of freedom to to explore life without having um, too much rigidity in my thinking. And I, I got involved with shamanism at the age of 19. And my parents, my parents took me to the um, to West Africa because I was quite mad at the time. Um, Kind of borderline psychotic, probably, and they thought that this would be a good way to to get me better. My parents were a little bit bohemian, um, so they took me to see a, a witch doctor in West Africa, and I I went to see this guy. I took a, a live chicken, and um, he wrapped me up in some beads and kind of put a load of smoke around me, and and did some chanting, and um, 
I thought it was all a bit weird and, and came home a week later. Um, but it was it was a it was an experience that really stuck with me and came back to me later in life. And since then, I've travelled to um, many places, kind of exploring um, the shamanic worldview of um, you know exploring the shamanic worldview, namely the Amazon jungle and the the Andes. So I got into this work firstly by training to be a hypnotherapist and then I kind of followed the path in terms of going to training in NLP and kind of, and then that's led to kind of more um, exploratory things in terms of incorporating art and particularly of more recent clowning. Mm. Um, but I have a kind of a bit of a quirky background. I was, I was, I've been, I've been a, I'm a former drug addict. I was addicted to crack and cocaine and well anything else anything could get my hands on really but um and that was because i was involved in a very very abusive relationship for about 12 years so i look at that now and see it was almost my it was my initiation it was my training to become a therapist because um i faced a lot of demons and a lot of pain and suffering at that time but somehow managed to claw my way out of it and I like to tell myself I'm a wise person for it. I was just going to jump in there, um, Alexia, because I, I do wonder, because I often hear a lot of uh, and speak to a lot of people within the world of change work and often find that people have moved into this area or this industry of helping others because they come from a background where they have had struggles and have come through it. Mm. Is that something mm. that you see as being you know, one of the reasons why you kind of moved into this area? I like to think so. Um, and it certainly wasn't intentional. When I first got out of um, my hole, so to speak, I, I started work, the, working with homeless people, um, people that got mental health problems, just really running quite low-key courses. And I was quite happy with that. Um, so the, the kind of the therapy thing, it it really wasn't intentional. I just really did fall into it from from that work, I suppose. Um, my mum was a psychotherapist, and my father had trained in um, as a psychiatric nurse. So um, I'd kind of grew up in psychiatry in one respect as well. Mm. So I'd kind of got it from my parents were both in psychiatry, and equally I. Um, I was a very likely candidate to probably be on a section in psychiatry <laughs> in my early years. <laughs> I was lucky they didn't catch me. <laughs> well, it's interesting that um, despite, uh, as you say, having many demons and then coming through, one of the things that you bring to, to your work is not uh, a, a feeling and a level of seriousness, but an idea of playfulness and of curiosity. Uh, and indeed, you talk about the yeah. sacred art of clowning. Um, and I, and I mm. do wonder, certainly in my own work, whether one of the things that happens within the world of change work is that, or, or one of the ways in which people stay too stuck in their problems is that we we treat problems with too much seriousness. Yeah, I completely agree. But it's, it's, it's kind of getting the, it's, a, it's about getting the timing right, isn't it, of when you start to introduce that kind of playfulness and start to inject humour into therapy. So, you know, getting people to stand back and actually kind of start to laugh at the situation is incredibly powerful. But if you get that at the wrong time, 
it could be really, it could be, become really quite messy and um, you may well lose your clients. So there's an art in how you kind of introduce that into therapy and get the timing right so it works perfectly. So how do you know, and, and you may not know, but I'm curious to ask the question, how do you know how and when it's time to begin to introduce uh, a little more playfulness into a session? I think it's, it's, it's probably client-led um, just by probably a, by a softening in their language, by a softening in, their, in, their, in the way that they're presenting themselves. Or it might be that I just kind of drop a few few joker cards in that uh, that I can kind of get a feel for if there's a shift taking place within them and at that point then I probably then I know that I can start to be a little bit more playful and cheeky with them. I love this idea that you would throw out a few kind of little joker cards as it were which mm. which from that description I wonder whether what you mean is that you could say something that if they were able to take it in a playful way they would but if they yeah. weren't then it wouldn't draw too many too much attention to it and you could just carry on and know that okay that was a little test but they're not ready yet yeah 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 there's there's sometimes um i might just do something a little bit playful and kind of take the piss out of myself a little bit and then that's an interesting measure to see how they respond to that and the great thing is if when you get people into this place their defense mechanisms are down so they're much easier to work with equally particularly if you're working with people that have got problems from their early years then kind of getting into that kind of jokey playful state of mind is eliciting them it's enabling them to kind of open up that state where the problem is so mm -hmm. it's there's something really magical with that which i think really enables you to work with much greater ease and efficiency with dealing with the problem so you're not getting caught up in the unnecessary details as well so one thing I'd, I'd love to talk to you about which I know we've spoken about on a few occasions is that you like working with severely complex cases I do and I think that's interesting because a lot of therapeutic change workers out there particularly and I, I don't want to cast aspersions or generalizations, but I think there are a number of hypnotists and NLPers who, you know, if someone comes and says, hey, guess what? You know, I'm pretty fine, but I just have a fear of spiders. You know, I kind of going to go oh, rub their hands. Let's, you know, sleeves up. Let's get stuck in. I, I know what to do here. But mm. when someone turns up and says, well, I just don't really know. I've got this going on and that going on. I think there's layer upon layer and I just can't. I, I just can someone help me mm. it, it's it's harder to have perhaps that sense of let's go for it but you seem to love that and thrive on that and embrace that I, I absolutely do I've become incredibly fascinated at that point um, it's and I, I love working with people that are complete messes um, that have got layers and layers of stuff and you just don't know where to start mm. um, and then they'll say what are we going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but we'll find a way. Let's just talk and start. So what advice would you have for other change workers who are out there who perhaps when they get people who are more complex, you know, are coming out in a bit of a cold sweat because they don't know where to start? 
you know, I think that it's, and this is where kind of existentialism is has been really useful for me because it's it's kind of looking at people's identities and the people that I meet that are that are described as these complex cases are people that are actually kind of beneath all of this kind of presenting chaos and conflict that's um, that's apparent in their life. What's often beneath that is some kind of existential kind of identity issue where it might be that they feel that they're invisible or that they're overly visible or that they have no value to the world and these are real core statements but they're often the people that have complete messages tend to have very opposing and conflicting statements seem to work really beautifully together to give them really bad results mm-hmm. um they're, they're absolute opposites at the at the same point and what's what what I tend to see is that you know it's it's a thinking level, it's a belief level. You've you've got these dynamics operating, but you've often got some more obscure emotions kind of cloaking that, such as shame. And shame's a, a, an emotion that, from my perspective, I don't think it's talked about enough, and I don't think it's covered in the majority of therapy trainings and. But it's such an elusive um, emotion that, and, I, and if we haven't dealt with our own shame as therapists, assuming that we may have had some, then it's difficult to spot it as well. So I would, if, if I, I think that kind of getting an understanding of shame and checking in with your own shame is a wonderful way of actually really starting to, to open your eyes to the these different dimensions of um, the human psyche. And it's just wonderful. Once you start to spot it, it gets really exciting. So how specifically is shame difficult to, to spot? From, from my experience, shame's best friend is denial. So the client will be in denial about certain things. So, you know, if I'm working with somebody that's um, experienced abuse from a father in their early years, um, they might well be in denial about that. And they, the, the interesting thing with how they talk about these things that are shame-based is, oh, this happened, but I've worked through it now. And they, they're very quick to dismiss the experience. And so you need to be careful at that point because, well, maybe they have and it, it is done and dusted. Or is this that this is actually a cover story because they're in denial of the, the extent of the issue. And actually, denial is going you are not going there. And people that are shamed are very good at being able to deflect you and to quickly change subjects to confuse you. So it's it's paying that, having that pure that awareness and that attention to looking out for those small details. And it's often that when people are talking about shameful events, that there'll just be a, a very short movement of the eye. They, they find it difficult to keep eye contact with you when they're talking about shameful events. And at that point, I'm like, right, look in my eyes and say that now. And then you get a very different response because the, the denial doesn't seem to be able to play at that point. That's really, really interesting about some of the ways in which you visibly observe and know to go back to something we've talked a little bit about uh, and you mentioned that you do sort of blend shamanism and the sacred art of clowning and some other areas in um if, yeah. if someone is out there and they've they're thinking hang on shamanism you know what's that you know we've talked about an experience with a witch doctor um as, as you might describe you know and uh, are, are we saying that alexia is taking people in and you know covering them in smoke and sacrificing live chickens and 
in her room when they come in for a particular issue as a hypnotherapist. Yeah, yeah. No, um, only only metaphorically we do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's lots of shamanic practitioners out there that do all the smoke and bells and whistles, and and that's fantastic. But that's not the approach I take because, um, you know, it, I think for a lot of people, particularly people that are attracting my work. That might freak them out a little bit if I started to do some of the kind of the more um, traditional approaches of shamanism. So I tend to blend it in with hypnosis, and often a lot of the time I'm working shamanically with people, and I don't I don't mention that we're kind of using shamanism. It's just mm. it's it's blended into other stuff. Um, sometimes people will specifically come and see me for um, purely shamanism, and and then we might do some more traditional stuff, but I I I, I lean towards more of a, a blending and it being really quite quite vague how I approach it. But I like the language of shamanism and I use that in the client with my clients. So I, I find the word um, soul loss hmm. um, probably has it's more meaningful to people. It seems to make more sense to people rather than using more. Um, modern words such as you may have had a splitting of splitting or a disassociation as a result of experiencing abuse or trauma mm -hmm. um, I also use like the terminology of power and power loss and how people use power so I use these terms of chauvinism to to enable people to see from a bigger picture um, what's actually occurring within them. And it just seems to make sense to people. So let's say somebody comes to see me and they, they lost a, you know, they lost a grandparent that they were particularly close to in their, uh, in their early years. And they never really kind of experienced the grieving pro process fully as a result of that. And, as, and there may well have been some feelings of abandonment and they may well have, um, felt like they'd lost the, the one person that they loved, is that, that that could have definitely have been, from a shamanic perspective, considered a soul loss, wherein modern psychology may say, oh, you, you experienced a disassociation to, to, to manage the pain of that. Um, but soul loss just seems to, it just seems to resonate with, particularly for me and the people that I work with. So using these terms, um, that's where I can start to incorporate this, this spirituality and, and encourage people to look at their lives in a much more ecological way. And that's how we can start to get them with to connecting back with their spirit. And I don't mean, and when I talk about spirituality, I'm talking about them as a kind of a core being and connecting with their creativity and their, their own internal power that gives them choices and freedom. So it's not the kind of spirituality where, you know, they're going to be, you know, kind of engaging on a, you know, kind of um, having to do long meditations each day or wear orange or kind of, you know, subscribe to a particular um, worldview. It, it is really about them and their identity and feeling good in themselves and feeling like they have power to be able to, to do the things that they want to do. So you said it talks about encouraging people to have an eco, a more ecological uh, life perspective, uh, and you also talked in the rapid fire round about the worst advice currently being given out within the world of change work was thinking positive. Yeah. And are those two tied together? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is a bizarre thing for me to say because most people would describe me as an incredibly positive person and I am really optimistic. Hmm. But I have got to kind of, I do grumble a little bit about this this whole kind of idea that's, you know, quite popular at the moment in terms of positive thinking. I'm not against positive thinking, but I think that it's, unfortunately, I think it's a term that's being thrown around a lot. Uh, and, and I think it promotes spiritual bypassing and what I mean by that is that if actually you know if we just keep thinking positive about things and we're not dealing with things that actually need to be addressed it's a bit like papering over the cracks and sometimes positive thinking isn't what we need to do we need to be engaging in more realistic thinking and that's where we can get the balance and so positive thinking can actually set us out of balance Mm. And it doesn't actually really help us. It, all it probably does is make you feel a little bit silly because you're like, oh, I keep trying to think positive. And, and if I say anything that's remotely negative, we tend to kind of shut people down and make them feel not good for saying, actually, I feel really rubbish today or I'm not really happy or I don't think I can do this. And actually, they may well just be having a really honest expression about how they're feeling. But this kind of idea of think positive can is a good it's a way of really shutting people down and I have concerns about that and so it does tie in with what you said about ecology because you know so many people come to see me and they might well be experiencing work-based stress and they go I want you to get rid of this stress because it's slowing me down and I can do that but actually I won't be helping them because it's their attitudes, it's the problems that it's going on within their thinking that's causing the, the stress. They're often perfectionists and don't believe that they're good enough. And just removing the stress isn't actually going to help them. It's that, you know, if they could continue in that way, they're probably going to make themselves feel quite poorly. So working with people in an holistic sense and kind of being very mindful of ecology and checking in with ecology all the time, it, I think is a, is a very useful way to promote much more rapid change. Well, it's interesting because you're, you're touching on a subject that's come up previously on the podcast a number of times, but this idea of responsibility for the change. And that if someone comes and says with a you fix me attitude, and it may not be, even if you could, the most empowering or the most ecological way of therapeutic intervention progressing. Yeah. Um, Gone changing tracks a little bit. Um, I know because um, we, we we've been talking on and off, haven't we, Alexia, for uh, over a couple of years now. Um, mm. And since I first spoke to you, you've incorporated this idea of the sacred art of clowning, which I love. When you sent me a little bit of information about it, you <laughs> described as saying you're training to become a professional idiot. Yes. Um, so could could you tell us a little bit about that and what is the sacred art of clowning? The sacred art of clowning is it's 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 this isn't about me dressing up and being silly and doing kids parties, which generally when I explain when I say to people I'm trained to be a clown, they think that I'm going looking for a change of career. It's not that it's it's about the archetype of the clown, the trickster. And this made so much sense to me because I'd realized that I'd been playing the clown and the trickster for probably quite a lot of my life, in particular in my former life where I had a very difficult life, actually kind of being able to think really outside the box and to 
um, enabled me to get out of some really tricky situations. And so it's been a part of my my therapy toolbox for a long time. I just didn't know it. And, you know, one day I just had one of those weird experiences when you're on the Internet and just looking around. I think I was looking at fairy tales and weirdly found myself uh, on this page to to sacred clowning. I read about three lines. I was like, that's it. I'm doing it. And literally just paid. It was I've never done that in my life. And I was just so excited. And I did my first week of sacred clowning um, a couple of months ago. And the impact of that has been really enabled me to to see how the how useful using the the clown archetype in my work is, and that's where this kind of this fascination and wonderment for what's going on with my clients. So when I work with really messy people, and I sit there and I'm scratching my head, going, I don't know where to start with this. This is where the clown comes in, and it's like this crazy wind, like. It's kind of like I just start to get really excited, and that's when I start to become really curious. And the sacred clown is it's 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 looking for the for the ordinary in the absurd, and the absurd in the ordinary. And so you're constantly turning things upside down um, with absolute playfulness, and and getting people to really challenge their beliefs and kind of looking at their beliefs and going, hey, look at this. How can you do that? Um, but you do it in such a, and it, it just is such a, it doesn't feel like it's an interrogation, which sometimes when you are digging and trying to get to the bottom of things, it can, it can kind of bring people's um, defense mechanisms up and it can, that can, I think that can prolong the, um, the work that you do. So kind of getting into this exploratory state of mind with the, with the clown, um, it just seems, it just seems to work. And it's this kind of, when I go into that kind of state of kind of clowning, I develop this real nimbleness for playing with the words. And I see the words as the keys and I just start to map out their worldview and want to get into their world worldview with them to see what's really going on here. And then it's like with two little explorers and I'm going, Hey, look at that. Oh, how do you see that? I can't see that. And it's, I think it kind of shifts the client's perspective to, hey, I've got a problem, to, oh, this is interesting. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow. Um, and that's really powerful. When I hear about therapists uh, incorporating other things into their work, they'll often talk about, you know, well, I learned this new technique or I learned this new uh, protocol which I do. Um, what I like about what you're saying, what's interesting to me, is that it, the, the sacred art of clowning is not sort of a, a protocol. It's not the methodology. It doesn't sound like a, no. a thing that you do on people, but it's more that it helps you go into a state that enables you to harness some natural, playful, intuitive tendencies, which then brings out something else from others. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think you've nailed that for me. Thank you. <laughs> but that's what's so, for me, so interesting about it, which is, you know, this idea that the state the therapist is in, the state the change worker is in, uh, what, what a difference that can make in terms of a yeah. session. Yeah, I get it's it's such a, it's, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I think, oh, gosh, I should get bored of this by now. But I don't. I just get 
really fascinated and excited. And the more the more complex it is, the more I'm kind of scratching my head and the inner clown's going, God, what's going on here? And then I just get it. Mm. And we know that we've they've literally just walked through this through the flames of all of their fears and just I know at that point that they're, they're in a new landscape where things are just seeming much brighter and the constraints and the the conflicts have just been broken and that's such a beautiful experience to share with somebody absolutely and we know historically that the archetype the figure of the fool the figure of the jester um, has great significance you know yeah. you, you look yes. at you know King Lear uh, and it was the fool, was it not, that could, uh, could he was the only one that could speak the truth. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. You can, you can get away with doing things or saying things that you might not be able to get away with. So I, I always let my clients know, you know, quite quickly that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm training in clan and, prof- and I'm trained to be a professional idiot, um, which I think kind of, stuns them a little bit because I think that they think they're going to come and sit with somebody that's very serious um, and very precious about the work that I do. So, you know, when I present myself as an idiot, so, that, so you also interesting reframe there that it changes finance. Well, it's not just, a, I would argue, a reframe, but it's a, it's, a, it's a frame that you set up that they will then buy into, which gives you permission to behave flexibly for you yeah. to, to wear that clowning cloak. Uh, that clowning outfit, um, but they know ahead of time. Um, otherwise, I, I imagine it might seem a little bit strange if they come in and you know we're sitting there d- talking about very serious stuff, and suddenly out the blue, totally unexpected, yeah. something pops out. But you know if they've bought into it ahead of time, you've set up a uh, you, you, you've got a framework that supports you feeling comfortable with doing that, which is which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I always make it quite clear to people at the consultation. You know. I'm going to ask you lots of questions. I'm probably going to irritate you sometimes. I think, but equally, we're probably going to have a really good laugh at sometimes as well. To the, you know, to the point of hysteria. I, I let people know I am quite unconventional the way that I work. Um, so, pe- people are very aware that I've got some. You know, I've got a very unusual approach to um, therapy, and and they seem open to that as well. And the great thing is, is that you, then you've got this element of surprise, so you can be really very creative with your work and um, work very intuitively. Fantastic. Again, you can bypass the defense mechanisms that sometimes we face and secondary gain. And um... So have you got a couple of examples of people that you work with um, and remarkably in a fairly short space of time, I mean, this is the Rapid Change Works uh, podcast after all, um, they've experienced some fairly profound transformations that have lasted. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, I've, I've been thinking about this, and I've kind mm. of like the, the the hypnotist in me was like, how do we measure change, and what's the that, and what time scales? I was like, oh, I think um, Howard might want to hit you on the head if you start that one, Alexia. So just come up with some answers. Well, no, the other, but it's an interesting point, um, and I have spoken to people um, who. You know, I spoke to a hypnotherapist who haven't appeared on the podcast, I hasten to add, um, who have said things to me like, well, you know, I work with them for a session. And if I don't hear from them again, I assume it worked. Yeah. And for me, the the area of how we track success rates, you know, and did it last and how we really know is also, uh, I think, a bigger conversation uh, perhaps for another time. But it's an important one. 
I offer um, I offer um, all new clients a, a free twenty minute consultation, mm-hmm. and so the quickest um, the quickest um, examples I can give of change are people that come and have a free twenty minute consultation. They sit with me for for a short period of time and give me a very rough overview of what they're experiencing, and I sit there and I go, Yeah, we can sort this out. We can do that. Of course we can. And they look at me like, Really? And I'm like, Yeah. And they make an appointment and they leave. And then a few days later, they give me a call and go, Alexia, it was great to talk to you, but I don't know what happened, but I I feel like I'm okay now. And they cancelled the session. (laughs) (laughs) That that is the the quickest change that I've occurred. Equally, I've worked with people that have been using, um, a few years ago, a guy came to see me that was a very heavy user of cocaine. And... My my general experience of working with um, certainly people that use cocaine is that it's going to take more than one session. Having said that, I've worked with a number of people that have come and had one session and they've stopped using cocaine um, literally after that session and things like amphetamines as well, which mm. um, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think and that's, that, that's, that kind of astounds me. And also, you know, kind of got the, the general things that, you know, all hypnotherapists experience in terms of nailing a phobia in one session with somebody or, you know, kind of relieving huge symptoms of anxiety in an hour and um, people just really feeling like they've regained control. So these are things that happen on a weekly basis. Um, and some of them, and I, I really don't know when I'm working with somebody that's got a, a you know, kind of um, a cocaine addiction or if somebody's got a phobia, if I'm going to be able to do it in an hour or if it's going to take four or five. Mm. Um, but I do have those experiences and it's wonderful. And I'm always. And, and even if it were five sessions, that would still be faster than Freud's 500 to 600 hours of therapy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, sometimes people turn up and. And they're in an absolute mess. You know, they've just, they've got a whole load of stuff going on. And I'm thinking, oh, I think this might take a while. And I don't know what happens. We just do something in that hour. And these are people that have been sectioned in hospital. There seems to be lots of complex stuff going on. Um, and what they've probably come to see me is to, is to be able to deal with the, the, the anxiety that they're experiencing on a daily basis. And we've done some stuff. Something's just happened. And everything seems to have cleared and they send me an email and they're great. They don't return. And, they, you know, this is not just because, oh, maybe they just can't be bothered or they haven't got the money. People have contacted me a couple of years later and say, thank you so much for what you did for me. My life has changed. Fantastic. I was just going to change track slightly um, and ask you, given that you, you've got a blend of different uh, methodologies and uh, tools that you, you use, you blend, you come from, could you, are there two or three books that stand out for you as uh, recommended reads for our listeners? At the moment, I'm, I'm really enjoying reading um, a guy called James Hollis. And, and I think that's it, the, the title of that book is How to Make Meaning of Your Life and to Grow Up Finally. Um, that's that's wonderful. It's, it's uh, really, interested, really interesting in the context of... Um, Jungian stuff and he's managed to be able to read Carl Jung and um, to be able to write about it to make it really easy to read so I'm a big fan of his at the moment um, in terms of hypnosis you know one of my favourite books was Monsters and Magic Sticks Stephen Heller, fantastic book 
brilliant book and I've not read it for a long time and I keep thinking to myself, I must read that book again. Um, but also um, stuff by Irvin Yollum. Um, again, it's he's been really fascinating me of recent um, and, I, and I like his writing in the context of um, existentialism. Um, but in terms of kind of uh, books that I might recommend clients, um, I really like the book Fuck It by John Parking. And the people that have recommended it to have found that um, kind of really, really down to earth and easy to read. Um, I read so many books, it's difficult for me to really have a favourite. And I am a very fickle person, so I love something one week and then I'm bored of it the week later and I'm on to something else. But that, that's great. And it's interesting as well, because, you know, speaking to, to so many change workers over the course of this podcast, hearing the books they recommend and seeing the patterns of the ones that keep coming up time and time again um, uh, is it, fascinating. Tell me if people are listening in and they're thinking, God, I like the sound of all this stuff. This is fantastic. Uh, and they want to get in touch with you. How can they do that? Where can they go? Um, well, my website is www.alexiaelliot.com co.uk that's a double l and a double t in elliot and my email address is on my website so you could email me or you could find me on facebook fantastic well we will put all the links and the details on the uh the rapid change works page underneath this episode um so it'll make it nice and easy alexia tell me is there anything that when we talked about you coming on onto the rapid change uh, matters podcast that you thought would come up but that i just haven't asked directly um I've, I've tried to preempt about a thousand questions that you might ask. Uh, so. <laughs> well, uh, any sort of closing closing words that might be useful uh, for our listeners? I, I, I guess I was kind of wondering. I was thinking about the types of frames that I might kind of set up for clients to to initiate what I think initiate um, rapid change, and not just rapid change, long lasting change. And I think that for me, it's my my kind of my world view as a therapist is looking for where people have lost their personal power. And I think that as I work with a client, that's what I'm looking at. Where have they lost the power? Because if they've got the power, things change. So it's if somebody's got a phobia, there will be a loss of power there. The phobia's taken the power. It might be somebody's heartbroken. And that's where we can see that there is a power loss. Mm. But ultimately, I think that the problem is, is if we don't have enough personal power, the most magnificent piece of wisdom be, can be placed in our hands and it means nothing. Whereas when we're standing in our own power, this, just one significant word can be enough to change the course of our direction. So for me, it's really fundamental when I'm working with people that we have these conversations about their personal power and what it means to them and how they can reclaim it and maintain it and to me that i think that that makes a big difference in the context of creating deeper and meaningful and quick change for people well listen alexia thank you so much for taking the time out of your massively busy schedule because i know you're you're constantly seeing people um to to, to speak to us and our listeners today and um, really hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed it and found it as fascinating as i have so thank you so much for your time Thank you, Howard, for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. 
You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. <laughs>